Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And today is the not. Today is the first cult episode of season two, baby. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, 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 Okay, so we're doing things a little different in season two. And we love that for ourselves and for you and for everyone. For everybody involved. Everyone benefits, you guys. Everyone benefits. This is a win-win-win situation. So especially us, because, you Yeah, know, we're the first two wins in that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I win, you win, we win. We all are winning right now. So we are just incorporating our cult episodes as just our regular episodes in season two. Because time is precious. Precious moments, little babies. Do you remember Precious Moments? <laughs> I do remember Precious Moments, and my association with them is Cabbage Patch Dolls. My f- Oh, they do kind of look similar. Mm-hmm. My very first debit card had Precious Moments on it. <laughs> yeah. That's how <laughs> old you are. I'm, now that I think about it, I was way too old to have a Precious mo- I think it, it was ironically. Sure. Because that's how everything we did in life I guess, yeah. was for quite some time. Yeah. It was we couldn't like the things we liked because we liked them. It had to be ironic. I mean, I genuinely loved Hanson and still love Hanson, which I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before. It, like Hanson's the the reoccurring dream I have the most yeah. is meeting a member of Hanson. We've got to make that happen for you at some point. In I know. Life. I, I did hear that they're like conservative. Yeah, I was thinking I heard at least one of them was a Republican now. Yeah, I'm I yeah, I'm gonna. Yep. But Oombop still hits. <laughs> Especially when they do it acoustic <laughs> in front of you. <laughs> I'm sure. I've seen them in Charlotte. I've seen them in Raleigh. I've seen them in Myrtle. Dirty Myrtle. Dirty Myrtle. Mm-hmm. Shout out. And a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah. I've seen them all around. I don't know how we got to Hanson, but here we are. I love that we're here. Uh, so question of the day. Mm-hmm. Sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Or socks, shoe, sock, shoe. Wow. Okay. Uh, I am sock, sock, shoe, shoe. I am as well. And so is my mom, which she texted to let me know the other day when I was having a bad day. It was very thoughtful. Yeah. She's like, we're all the same. Yeah. She just texted me randomly and she was like, I've been thinking about a lot and it's sock, shoe, sock, shoe. I was like, I'm so glad that we have all dedicated time and conversation to the order in which these (laughs) things happen. I think it depends No, I think I'm always sock, sock, shoe, shoe. I am generally sock, sock, shoe, shoe. No, sock, shoe, sock, shoe. You're sock, shoe, sock, shoe? Yes, I'm sock, shoe, sock, shoe. Final answer. (laughs) What did I say earlier? You said what I said. Because it was probably wrong. (laughs) You're such a copycat. (laughs) (laughs) They all start with S's. I know. Which is super unfair. (laughs) So you are sock, shoe, sock, shoe. Yes. So you cross your leg over and you're like, while I'm here. Might as well knock them both out. But then you have a naked foot and a fully clothed foot. But I'm fine with naked feet in general, like generally speaking. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My son, John, <laughs> who also rocked the one sock off, one shoe on, one shoe off. Who? Dildo dumpling, my son, John. Isn't that the old nursery rhyme? What are you saying? <laughs> do what you're saying there's an old nursery rhyme that's like john 
my son John goes to bed with one shoe off and one shoe on. <laughs> I don't remember the rest of it. That is the beginning and the end of the rhyme that I remember. Wow, that's old timey. Also creepy. For some reason, John is creepy for me right now. Well, it's kind of like it's raining, it's pouring. The old, the old man, man is, is snoring. He went to bed and bumped his head and died. <laughs> like, yeah. are you aware <laughs> that you were singing? So a how is he rhyme? snoring if he's dead? Well, he was snoring and then he bumped his head, and he so didn't he wake up? up in the morning so because he, he died. <laughs> 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 They're all fucked up. <laughs> They are all fucked up. There is no way around it. We've already talked about uh, Ring Around the Rosie, right? Yeah, we did. And the bubonic plague. That was a good one. The boob plague, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, so speaking of sock shoe, sock shoe. When I was in undergrad, I had a uh, communication class. And one of the things we had to do was, like, pick a topic from a hat and stand up and, like, give a speech about this topic. Mm Mm-hmm. And so everyone went and I happened to be last. I really liked this class. I was looking forward to it. And I go up and pull out my little strip of paper and it says socks. Mm-hmm. So I sit there for a second and I'm like, socks, socks. Did, and is as, this impromptu? Like you had to go up and talk about yeah, it right then? Okay. Yeah. You had like three or five minutes and you just had to go talk about it. Like it wasn't a persuasive argument. It was just talk about the subject. Would have been a great podcasting bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> So then I proceeded for the next five minutes to talk about the nature of our education system where a person with a list has to give a three to five minute presentation on socks. <laughs> I and love like it. definitely emphasize the list a little uh-huh. bit more uh-huh. just to make sure it really stood out. Stuck. It's stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's a that's a communications thing to do. For sure. And like I double majored in one of my majors is fully just communications and it like thinking back at it it's like what does that even mean that you are an excellent communicator and super approachable yeah so approachable (laughs) but that sounds like a theater assignment that sounds like a zip zap zop like we're gonna like warm up ow now brown cow what if communications is theater without the stage oh like if your life is a stage if you are a movie if life is a highway. <laughs> well, it's a highway to hell, so. <laughs> everything everything is a stage if you let it be one, says a narcissist, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to some degree, I feel like we're all imposters here, so everything might as well be a stage because we're all just faking it till we make it. Life is an illusion. And time is not real. Forever and ever, amen. So... We have a podcast to do. We are being recorded right now. (laughs) Which leads us to... Which leads us to me going first, guys. If you recall, that's how this works on the cult episodes. It's a little switcheroony. A little switcheroony. Also, if you're new, where have you been? Also, once a month we do a cult episode where we compare a cult piece of media and an actual cult. Because we love cults and we don't even really have to do the intersections. Exactly. Because so. we wanted to do a true crime podcast, but it, the market was oversaturated. And so here we are. Um, and also, as much as we love cult films, we could not keep up with that. No, no. Um, and our partners would not like it. Oh, no. If we just sat here and watched, can you imagine how upset they would be if we just watched cult films all day? Well, so Ray watched the, are we talking about what we're talking about? 
I guess they can see yeah, it. Yeah, they can. I mean, they already know the they title. They already know. So Ray and I watched Monty Python together. Oh, how did Ray feel about Monty Python? Well, I started it and I was like, you're going to hate this. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know. It's absurd. It is just the weirdest thing. Yes. We'll get yes, to it. it. We'll get to it. But in the meantime, I am going to be talking about the the, uh, the Branch Davidians and the, the Waco Siege. None of those words sounded real. Run the that Branch past me one Davidians. More time. Branch Davidians. Branch Davidians. Okay. Um, so let's go back to 1929, shall we? A man named Victor Haltiff, a member of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. How many? How many? Like I feel like like five out of the six cults. It's like the Every, Seventh Day Adventist. Yeah, sure. every third cult is a Seventh Day Adventist. Seventh Day Adventist cult. So, um, yeah, which just reminds me of Lane Kim every time. <laughs> Who? Lane Kim from uh, Gilmore Girls. Her mom oh. was a Seventh Day Adventist. Like it was a whole like really? subplot. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Didn't know. Okay, so this Victor Howtiff guy, he claimed to have a new message uh, for the entire Adventist community. Mm-hmm. He published his views in a book called The Shepherd's Rod, The 144,000, A Call for Reformation. Reformation, some okay. say. Uh, the leaders in the church rejected his new views as they were contrary to the basic principles of, of the religion. They hated it so much, in fact, that they kicked him out of the church. And thus a cult was born. And thus a cult was born. And we know if there's anything related to 144,000... And revelations. We know we know where this is going. Oh, yeah. We know we, we're tying it back. Yep. Um, and, it, of course, if, if you don't know, it's relating to the, the chosen ones chosen to go to heaven. It did sound familiar, but I didn't want to ask. So I'm really glad you provided that context. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in revelations. Yep. Um, there was a time when we didn't know, but now we know. Okay. So, of course, he decides that he's going to kind of branch off, start his own, some might say, cult, some might say religious organization. Was he asking for money? He was absolutely asking for money. Then it's a cult. Then it's a cult. It could just be a church. They Mm -hmm. also ask for money. The Venn diagram is very cylindrical. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So, in 1934, he established his headquarters in Waco, Texas, and his group... Uh, became known as the Davidians. After he passes, a segment of the group continued under the leadership of his wife, Florence. Great name. I right? There's some good there's some good names in here. She was convinced that the apocalypse would occur in 1959. However, the date wasn't written down, so we don't know exactly which date in 1959, but either way, 1959. Spoiler alert, she was wrong. <laughs> the event or, did not occur. Or it did occur, and then this is all just a figment of someone's imagination. Or they took the 144,000 and, and left the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would yeah. make more sense. Yeah, so all of those are a possibility. So obviously, everybody was disappointed that nothing happened. And another member of the group, Benjamin Roden, formed another sect after this incident happened. And he called them the Branch Davidians. Because they're branching from the Davidians, okay? Okay. And he succeeded with overtaking the majority rule in that group. 
Mm-hmm. So it passes through several different hands, including his wife, Lois, another great female name. Florence and Lois. And I want to write a book about them. Yeah. So after she passes, another man came in and his wife, and then this guy named Vernon Howell rose to power. He's better known by his new name, David Korish. That's our guy. Okay. David arrived on the scene in 1981 and was loved by nearly everyone in the group. Despite having clawed his way to the top. Of course he was. I started doing the notes and I'm like, there's so much to like claw through. It's like they, this, this group, like, it sounds like from hand to hand. Yeah. What was weird about David was that he tried to pursue a relationship with Lois, who of course, at at one point was a leader of the group. Wasn't she like already deceased? No, this, so he was, he was existing during a lot of the the powers changing over. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So she was 40 years older than him. Okay. Okay. And he was trying to pursue a relationship with her. And his goal was to father a child with her. Okay. Okay. Right. I see where this is going. Who he believed would be the chosen one. Naturally. Right. Because his swimmers are like extra special and whatnot. Yeah. Right. And she's just very fertile. Mm. I mean, she would have had to have been assuming that he was at least 18 you know, like, <laughs> there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a little math there. There's, a, there's, there's no way. Um, so he had these weird kind of tumultuous relationships with a lot of people okay. uh, in the organization, but he did come out on top. And he was the leader. Um, and he decided to change his name to David Korish because it ties to biblical King David uh, and Cyrus the Great because Korish uh, in Hebrew or the Hebrew version is the Hebrew version of the name Cyrus, supposedly. Huh. Interesting connection. Also, David and Davidians, it definitely sounds like someone who would worship David would be a Davidian. Yeah. So for the branch Davidians who worship David. Makes sense. Yeah. It all tracks for me. I like patterns. I like patterns too. So he chose he chose the name also because he interpreted a reference in Revelations regarding a lamb. David suggested that the lamb would become like the lamb would become Jesus and of course he's the lamb. Right. So, you know. Wasn't Lamb of God kind of done at that point, though? No. No. The Lamb of God is never done. No, but I mean, like, out already, like, the concept existed in the world pre David Cordish. Yes. There are no original thoughts. Okay. Correct, Mundo. So, David exercises his new authority by spiritually marrying several wives from his group. We love that. We for love him. it, except for the fact that it was illegal. That we don't love, right? Um, he stated in 1989 that he was the perfect male for all female members. Ew, just the perfect, right? He also confided that he intended to create a new lineage of children, who, of course, would eventually rule the world. Huh. The group, along with his spiritual wives was extremely diverse. Um, there were all ages, all races. Everyone was invited and celebrated within this group, uh, which is different than some other cults that we've seen. Jonestown was very similar. It was right. like, come one, come all. This kind of has similar vibes. Okay. Without the mass suicide. I was wondering if it had the same outcome, but I was waiting for you to, you know, let me know. So, unfortunately for all parties involved, several of David's spiritual wives were teenagers. 
That is unfortunate. A former member had filed child abuse charges on him. And in 1992, evidence was aired in court where ex-members, you know, claimed, you know, some sexual abuse and also tried to, to get custody of children that were still on the group. At that point, child abuse charges got the attention of local authorities, obviously, because it's court. Right. Because the police department were uneducated about the group's interpretation of the Bible, they feared that the Branch Davidians would violently attack their neighbors or do some type of harm during an end times uh, ritualistic practice. A little panic. Little right. satanic panic. A little concerned about this mass suicide. Yeah. I mean, it's happened before. It's, it's not, happened before. It's definitely not out of the realm of reality. So they suspected that the group who for some reason had a license to manufacture and sell weapons huh. was they, they feared that they were hoarding illegal weapons in the the compound that they had. I can see how they got there. Also, I know that I I know that I must have read this, but I don't remember why they would ever have a license to manufacture and sell weapons. <laughs> I have no idea. It is Texas, so... It is Texas. We are still in Waco, Texas, right? Correct, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like that's all the explanation needed. I think Chip and Diana... Diane? Diana? Gaines? Uh-huh. They're in Waco. Are they? I think so. I might be lying. I feel like there's a big airplane thing in Waco. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. They, I think that they're trying to rebrand a little bit. I know a personal friend of ours who's, like, her mission is to rebrand Texas. Oh, Yeah. Yep. So shout out. shout out and we wish you the best of luck. <laughs> Things are not looking well in your favor for this particular story, but yeah. you should tell Beyonce to text me back because <laughs> she won't. So in early 1993, ATF agents in Texas requested a search warrant for the commune property, but decided to make a surprise force entry rather than serve the warrant. So here we go. We all know the story of Waco, Texas. We're going to break it down on what happened in the days leading up to this tragic event. Okay. Okay. On February 27th, 1993, one day before the police arrived, a local newspaper started publishing articles related to, quote, the sinful Messiah. That's a catchy tagline. It is. In your own backyard? That's going to sell papers. For sure. So these articles reported on child abuse allegations and statutory rape allegations. Uh, claims of uh, polygamy were also included. The article claimed that Korish had announced that he was entitled to 140 wives and that he was able to pick a, um, any of the women in the group and fulfill that need. It also stated that some of the children who became his bride were as young as 12 or 13. So this is what's reported in the newspaper. Interestingly, it turns out that the sheriff's department, since the charges were from the previous year, had they'd been uh, surveilling the property Mm -hmm. and they even had somebody go undercover into the group. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Based on the information from the allegations, they did get a search warrant. It was issued uh, for illegal weapons. Right. So on the morning of February 28th, 1993, the raid was scheduled to occur. Supposedly, the Branch Davidians knew about the raid, which is counterintuitive because you often don't want a raid to be a surprise. (laughs) So what had happened was a TV reporter got some type of tip that there was going to be a raid. everybody else off. 
the TV reporter asked directions to the Waco commune no. to a Waco commune member. No. <laughs> he was like, dude, there's a there's gonna be a raid at this fucking commune. Like I'm trying to go check that shit out. Where is it? And they were like, hmm. So they jump in the car, head on home. That feels like one of those things where it's like your friend tells you not to tell anybody and then you tell somebody and then your friend's like, yo, why the fuck did you tell somebody? Because <laughs> Because I told you not to tell somebody. Because I told you not to tell anybody, man. Yeah. Yeah. Can I? Yeah. This is why we can't have nice things. This is why we can't have nice things. So the ATS agents, the police agents had written their blood type on their arms. Okay. So that they could, it could easily be identified, I guess, if they required serious medical attention or, or a blood transfusion. So to me, they're going into this thinking that it's going to be violent. Right. If they're writing. And I don't know the rules. I don't know if that's normal protocol. I have no idea. I don't know either. It happens a lot on Grey's Anatomy, I feel. So. Does it? Um, they've definitely, like, written people's blood types on their arms. But usually that's after the massacre or, like, event. Mm-hmm. It's also Grey's Anatomy. So. Right. These are people. This is before anything has happened. Just, like, law enforcement. Right. And it's not a soap opera long-term TV show. Correct. Um, the, the police were also recording the whole time, uh, which is an important piece later. Uh, it, it's actually good that they were. Okay. So that we have some, some evidence of, of some things. Survivors would later report that Korish had asked uh, the men to take up posts. So they were armed uh, while the women and children were brought to a separate room to take cover. Korish told the group that he would attempt to contact the agents to discuss a resolution. And as this happens, the ATS is uh, the police department pulls up uh, at 945 sharp. The police claim that they heard gunshots coming from inside the compound. However, the Branch Davidians say that the police fired first. Doesn't matter who shot first. The first shot towards the Branch Davidians, Korish was wounded. First shot. Can you believe that? Wow. He was uh, shot through his hand and his stomach. Oh, and so it begins. A police officer was killed after he made it close to the commune on the west side. And after this, uh, agents took cover and helicopters began flying low about 350 feet over the building. And I can like it must have been so scary. Like, oh, I'm sure. For like helicopters are circling, gunfire. Um, of course, the Branch Davidians shoot or uh, trying to shoot the helicopters. Right. Luckily, though, they didn't shoot down a helicopter yeah that would have been bad that would have been really bad the pilots of course were afraid of you know being injured and they pulled pulled away right so the branch davidians are they like anti-secular people so are like they super secluded would they have been surprised like some of these cults i know are super extreme and like so separate from the outside world that they have not seen other people outside of people in the cult yeah um uh, that part I'm not exactly sure about. I mean, okay. they did they they did have a commune, so they did they were they probably were more excluded. yeah. But we know that one of them one of the guys was in town, so it couldn't have been that's true super secluded. Yeah, that's a good point. It, but it wasn't like the LDS church or something. Okay, yeah, yeah. So in a scene straight out of the second Lord of the Rings movie, the police secure ladders <laughs> and flip them up onto the roof and they send agents, um, you know, on the on the roof of the house. Uh, they try to infiltrate Korsh's bedroom, which they believed had all the weapons in it. They crouched underneath the window frames 
And when the branch, the branch Davidians discovered that they were on the roof, they began shooting back at them. One officer died and one was wounded. The third agent that was up there was then joined by others, uh, and they tried to break into the bedroom through the window. They threw a stun grenade through the broken glass. This is when one agent was wounded by bullets and another one was killed. Once inside, they shot a member of the Branch Davidians. Gunshots rang out for 45 minutes until the police force started running low on bullets. But the shooting didn't stop for another hour and 15 minutes until they negotiated a ceasefire. Quote, ATF agent Chuck Hustmeyer later wrote, quote, about 45 minutes into the shootout, the volume of gunfire finally started to slacken. We were running out of ammunition. The Davidians, however, had plenty, end quote. And that's scary. Like, you don't want to be the one in a shootout that's running out of ammunition. You definitely don't. Outgunned, outmanned. A 1999 federal report noted, quote, the violent tendencies of dangerous cults can be classified into two general categories, defensive violence and offensive violence. Offensive violence, I guess. Sure. Because of sports. Uh, (laughs) Defensive violence is utilized by cults to defend a compound or enclave that was created specifically to uh, eliminate most contact with the dominant culture. The 1993 clash in Waco, Texas at the Branch Davidian Complex is an illustration of such defensive violence. History has shown that groups that seek to withdraw from the dominant culture seldom act on their beliefs that the end times have come unless provoked, end quote, which is interesting. Uh, I don't know that I would agree with that. I mean, I guess... Can you you say that again? So they're saying that um, it was a defensive attack. Right. That most end time cults don't seldom act on their beliefs that the end time has come unless they're provoked. Yeah. So I don't know if I quite disagree or agree, but that's one per- that's one stance, I guess. Uh, so once the ceasefire happened, FBI agents were able to get a video camera inside the facility. The Branch Davidians also communicated to news outlets and media via telephone. The phones were eventually cut off and the Branch Davidians now had no access to the outside world other than contact with the FBI. Okay. So the most common and the most like, like you'll see like the footage from inside the Waco, Texas compound uh, because they were in there for 51 days. (gasps) So for 51 days, the Branch Davidians were held up in their commune documenting their experiences. Luckily, they negotiated with the police and there was an agreement where they could leave the compound uh, to re- in return for a message to be broadcasted on the radio. So they're like, we'll, we'll give up <laughs> uh, if we can get a broadcast on a radio. Right. The message was broadcast, but Korsh uh, went back on his word. However, 19 children ranging from 12 to 5 months old were allowed to leave the compound, oh. leaving 98 people still <gasps> inside. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I don't know who that how they decided which kids were going to stay. That was not all the kids, I'm assuming. No. Okay. No. Uh, in the videotapes, Korish introduces several individuals as his wife and many as his children. They believe um, as many as 14 children. On uh, March 8th, uh, which is day nine, a video was sent to the FBI from inside the compound showing interview footage of the Branch Davidians claiming that they were not victims, but they were there by choice. Oh. According to the account of the children who were no longer inside the compound, they had been physically and sexually abused. 
This was the main reason for the FBI launching tear gas attacks to try to force the people to come out of the compound. The next excerpt is from our friends at Wikipedia. As the siege continued, Korish negotiated for more time, allegedly so that he could write religious documents he needed to complete before, uh, before surrendering. His conversations, which were dense with biblical imagery, alienated the federal negotiators who treated the situation as a hostage crisis. Among themselves, the negotiation teams took to, uh, to calling Korish's words, quote, biblical babble. Mm. As the siege wore on, two factions developed within the FBI, one believing negotiation to be the answer, the other force. Increasingly um, aggressive techniques were used to try to force the Branch Davidians out. For example, sleep deprivation of the inhabitants through all-night broadcasting of records of jet planes, pop music, Buddhist chanting, and the screaming of rabbits being slaughtered. Oh my god. Right? What? So bizarre. Ra- That's the most specific, like, shit. Yeah. That sounds torturous to me. It does. Like, most of those others, I was like, I could sleep through that. That wouldn't be a problem. Rabbits being slaughtered. Well, it's all, like, it's all fucked up. It's all super fucked up. Um, it's psychological warfare. Yeah. Yeah. None of this is good. No, it's all bad. None of this is good. Yeah, super messy. Outside the compound, nine Bradley fight, fighting vehicles, Bradley fighting vehicles, carrying M651 CS tear gas grenades and ferret rounds. Don't know what that is. And five <laughs> M728 combat engineer vehicles contained from the U.S. Army began patrolling. The armed vehicles were used to destroy perimeter fencing and outbuildings and crush cars belonging to the Branch Davidians. So they're just like bulldozing the shit out of the whole property. So they're like, listen, you won't come out. We're going to destroy all this shit. Well, and when you see footage, they, like the front yard is kind of muddy. And that's just because they've been driving back and forth right, and back and forth yeah. for 51 days. Wow. Armed vehicles repeatedly drove over the grave of Branch Davidian Peter Gent, despite protests by the Branch Davidians and the negotiators. That's disrespectful. I know. Two of the three water storage tanks on the roof of the main building had been damaged during the initial ATF raid. Eventually, the FBI cut all power and water to the compound, forcing those inside to survive on rainwater and stockpiled military MRE rations. Criticism was later leveled at the tactics of using sleep and peace, disrupting sounds against the Branch Davidians. Quote, the point was this. They were trying to have sleep uh, disturbance and they were trying to make someone that they viewed as unstable to start with and they were trying to drive him crazy. And then they got mad because he does something that they think is irrational, end quote. So I guess that makes sense. Right. They're trying to, they are trying to push this guy 100% to the edge, who they already think is is mentally unstable. Because they're trying to get him to do something. They're trying to get him to come out. Right. And he is shot, to be fair. But healing or well, surviving. Surviving. Thriving? Unclear. No. <laughs> I'm going to say no. Korish had repeatedly denied any plans for mass suicide when confronted by negotiators during the standoff, and people leaving the compound had not seen any such uh, preparation, end quote. So that's good. 
He's yeah. like, by we're the gonna way. like hunker down and we're gonna stay here, but mm-hmm. no plans of killing everybody. Right. The final fight uh, between the Branch Davidians and the FBI took place on April 19th, 1993, after nearly two months of sitting and waiting. The combat engineering vehicles, or CEVs, used explosives to blow holes in the walls of the building, and they began pumping tear gas into the compound. The goal here was to try to get them out without, quote, hurting them. Uh, I have a question, Allison. Uh, yes, Karen. Isn't tear gas also painful? It is. Okay. It makes you tear. Right. And gassy, I think. <laughs> so maybe the least. Yeah, I guess. I, guess I mean, the goal was to not use force. I guess that's probably what they're arguing because they lost enough people in the siege 51 days prior. Right. But this did not get the Branch Davidians out, and they did begin shooting at the police. Because uh, they're like, you're going to attack us? I guess we'll attack you. So in response, the police began using more and more tear gas. Okay. So after six hours, uh, little progress had been made. And instead of feeling the uh, fleeing the building, the Branch Davidians were using a bunker inside the building that was protecting them. At noon, three separate fires broke out in three separate parts of the building. The government states that these fires were set intentionally by the Branch Davidians. Oh, okay. Nine people evacuated the building as the flames began to engulf the entire compound. None of these who escaped were children. It is stated that Korish's uh, right-hand man, Stephen Schneider, shot and killed Korish and then himself. In total, 76 people died in the fire. There was an independent study uh, conducted by the University of Maryland's Department of Fire Protection Engineering. They concluded that the residents of the compound had sufficient time to escape the fire uh, if they had wanted to, which is eerie, right? Yeah, super. Autopsies of the dead showed that some of the women and children who were found were found under concrete walls that had collapsed and they died of skull injuries. So they were crushed either when they entered the building and bulldozed that wall right, or when the building collapsed. Okay. Others were found to have evidence of poisoning, which uh, could have been uh, resulted from the tear gas. Right. Autopsies showed that at least 20 Branch Davidians were shot, Korish as well as five children under 14. Mm. A three-year-old girl was stabbed in the chest, and the person who conducted the autopsy had a personal belief that these were mercy killings from those who were trapped inside the building uh, without, you know, who they didn't right. think would be able to escape during the fire. This is such a bizarre case. And I think it leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions. Just a general why? Yeah. Uh, and what would happen? What would have happened had the siege not occurred? Well, and like the kids who did escape, what happened to them? How are they doing? How do they are they therapists? doing? My God. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. I mean, the I think the fires, the fires, like the biggest discrepancy, people don't know how they started. Right. So there's one of two options. They were intentionally set by somebody or they were just some type of accident. Or they were intentionally set by somebody inside or outside. Right. Exactly. Like 
because I'm sure that there could be a case made either way. Mm-hmm. Damn. Cuckoo balloons. That's definitely one I'm going to have to like do a little bit more digging on mm-hmm. because I've heard of it before, but like never to that detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I listened to enough true crime that I've heard of Waco, Texas. Like, yeah. um, but I have, I don't think I've heard an actual like podcast about it before. So that definitely makes me want to like go and do more digging. Yeah. It's wild. Very well done. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail.com. And we're back. And we're going to talk about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It was exactly like I remember it. It was better and also worse right? than I remember. It's so, okay. It's long. Like, it's only like an hour and 30, but so much happens and also nothing happens. So true. It's, and it's so segmented. Like, right. each scene is so unlike the one before it so that's what made writing notes for this thing especially difficult i'm sure so because like there's part of me that wanted to like break down every scene and then there was part of me that was like but what was the overarching storyline no there's very little the answer is Um, no that was like well we could talk about you know low budgetness of it which we do actually talk about. But I was also like really curious as to who the fuck made this thing. <laughs> and what kind of drugs were they on specifically? Great question. Uh, I don't have that answer LSD. for you. But I can tell you <laughs> there was some alcohol involved. You think so? There, there was definitely some alcohol involved. I'm thinking LSD. Also quite possible. It was very Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. It was. Also, this is not their only right. thing. I know. So... We're going to talk about it. It's their best thing, though. I have not seen a lot of their other things, to be fair. Okay. But I now have added spam a lot to my Broadway goal list. I've never seen it either. No, but I did know. Oh, actually, I'm going to save that for when we get there in my notes. Okay. I have a note. And so, like, the way I did my notes for this is to be super transparent. I had trouble writing notes. And then I was like, talk to Allie about how, <laughs> you know, absurd this movie is. And then it says, uh, say, I hear the people in the back screaming, get on with it. Cause like ah! God comes in and screams, get on with it. And like, there's the whole army that's like, get on with it. So that's where we are. That's how I felt writing this. I, so when Ray and I, so <sighs> Ray just needs a specific kind of movie to enjoy. And, uh-huh. like, he doesn't want to have to think too hard. And the dry humor is not his thing. This is very deadpan. So deadpan. Also, you have like, to watch it at least 15 times in order to understand anything about it. Well, it, and it even starts, like, in the credits, in the, in the yeah. beginning credits. And if you don't think that the credits in the beginning are funny, then you're not going to think the movie is funny. Right. Right. And that's what, like, I read so much about, like, the comedy in this, and we're going to talk more about that, but pretty much everyone kind of said the same thing. Like, if you, it starts funny from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. and you're either going to love it or absolutely Mm -hmm. hate it, but you're going to know in the first, like, two minutes. I think that's quintessential of a cult movie. 
Agreed. Very polarizing. Yeah, it reminds me so much. So uh, my partner and I were watching it together, and she was like, this is like half Princess Bride, and Mm. also... Like, in my mind, I filled in with, what's the other one? Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm -hmm. It's like if Princess Bride and Rocky Horror Picture Show had a baby and there were cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of the scenes in Rocky linger way too fucking long. And you're like, get on with it. Yeah. And I I think it's funny that they played on that. Absolutely. And, And you're right. Like, there's no, there's no beginning, middle, and end. No. No, it's just, here's the most absurd thing. It's like a whole bunch of skits kind of around the same plot line. Yeah. And then they have, like, a book to move them along. Right. They're like, okay, we want to do these 500 skits. <laughs> How can we make this into How a movie? But they're in bite-sized, like, they're in palatable, uh, like, bite-sized pieces. So right. So each scene is, like, six minutes long, which is perfect for all of our brains who can only think in six-minute increments. Right, Exactly. Okay, so usually we say the measure of a good um, cult film is that, like, on Rotten Tomatoes, their score is super low and the audience score is super high. Mm -hmm. However, this one breaks that rule. The tomato meter for Rotten Tomatoes is at 98%. No way. And the audience score is at 95%. Whoa. I know. So... We talk, we'll talk about this a lot, but this movie and this style of comedy was so transformative for the time um, and has really informed a lot of comedy since then. Mm-hmm. So they actually say that um, Monty Python, which is like a troop of people, it's six guys, um, that they did for comedy what the Beatles did for music. Sheesh. Like high praise. Way right? to go. It does have SNL vibes. It definitely. Oh, we talk about that too. SNL was actually informed by Monty Python yeah. as well. So the release date is April 1st, 1975. April Fools. And this is truly like the best April Fools movie. Yeah, it is. Okay, so here's the um like summary from Rotten Tomatoes, because I love their summaries. This is a comedic send-up of the grim circumstances of the Middle Ages as told through the story of King Arthur and framed by a modern murder investigation, mythical king of the Britons leads his knights on a quest for the Holy Grail. Mm. They face a wide array of horrors, including a persistent black knight, a three-headed giant, a cadre of shrubbery-challenged knights, the perilous castle anthrax, a killer rabbit, a house of virgins, and a handful of rude Frenchmen, and so on. A partridge in a pear tree. Amen. Amen. So, like, we could spend the next hour and a half to 15 hours talking about each of these scenes in particular. We could just quote them. Tis but a scratch. <laughs> like, I fought in your general direction. <laughs> <laughs> your father smells of elderberry. <laughs> like, it just gets so good. I remember quoting like middle school like all we did in the neighborhood was quote this movie so i did not see this movie until college really i did not see it until i was in a rhetoric class in undergrad um and then we saw like the she's a witch scene Mm -hmm. and i was like this is the best thing i've ever seen in my life i must watch it right now so i went home and watched it i love how she's like meh they got me (laughs) (laughs) but 
what I would really like to do is give like a little bit more of the history here. Mm -hmm. So like, why is this movie so popular? What does it do? How does it do it? Why does it do it so well? So Monty Python, also collectively known as the Pythons, which sexy in my note is the Pythongs. Ooh, yes. Which is even sexier. (laughs) The Pythongs. The the Pythongs. Where a British comedy troupe who created the set sketch comedy TV show called Monty Python's Flying Circus, which is now on Netflix for all of your viewing pleasure. It first aired on the BBC in 1969. They also have released other like things. So it's not just like this one TV show and then this one movie. Mm-hmm. The TV show lasted for four seasons. They did... A movie called The Life of Brian. Mm-hmm. Have you seen The Life mm-hmm. of Brian? I have not. So, like, a little brief synopsis here, because I'm going to go back and watch it. Brian was born on Christmas in the stable next to Jesus and spends his life being mistaken for the Messiah. Isn't that hilarious? It is so funny. Just, like, like just the premise brilliant. of that is brilliant. Yeah. Yep. And then they have Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. And then various other comedy albums. Like, this is back in the day of having, like, the big... What are they called? CDs? Records. Oh, records. Uh-huh. Of having, like, big records of just comedy. Oh. So, yeah. So, you can go buy their comedy albums. They also had shows for the theater. Oh. Like, Flying Circus eventually came to the theater. Mm. And so did Spamalot. Yeah. Which, did. have you... You haven't seen Spamalot. No. Okay. Are you aware... That Sada Ramirez, who is a non-binary god among men, mm-hmm. and Tim Curry perform "Find Your Grail." They sing it together. In no. like, so Spamalot is Monty Python. Mm-hmm. Like they're the same thing, yeah. Except it's renamed for the theater, right? Theater. Uh, and Sada Ramirez also played Callie in Grey's Anatomy. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're on the. Uh, newest season of sex in the city oh okay right i, don't know. I think it's like cynthia's partner or something cool She's cynthia really nixon cool what's her name in the show i don't remember okay anyways they're amazing and super hot and tim curry is amazing and tim curry is amazing super hot so all of you take a minute actually take about two and a half minutes and go listen to find your grail I'm, i don't know any music from spam a lot i knew so I only knew about this one because I found out that they they did a musical episode for Grey's Anatomy and they're an amazing singer and mm-hmm. I was doing some googling, gave it a goog. So found out that they performed on Broadway and then was like I must immediately see all the things that they have ever sung. I heard that that's how they were discovered for yeah. Grey's Anatomy was Broadway. Yeah, so now they've like branched into TV world and and the rest is history. The rest is history. Uh, they also have a TV sh- or a theater show called Not the Messiah, which is based on Life of Brian. They oh. also have books, video games, card games, and now games for your smartphone where you can throw cows. Yes. I know all the things you never knew you needed until you heard it. Now you're like, I must download all the Monty Python games. It. In 1974, the troupe was between their third and fourth season of The Flying Circus and decided to do a feature film. Obviously, it was heavily based on Arthurian legend. Mm-hmm. So, like, King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table, Excalibur, mm-hmm. um, Disney's done Arthur's it. Court. Yeah, exactly. 
And the movie was directed by two of the members of the troupe. So Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam directed it, the Terrys. The Terrys? Uh, one of which is American. Uh, Terry Gilliam is American. The other one is British. And they apparently give Terry Gilliam a hard time for being American. I don't blame them. <laughs> but all the members of the troupe like, can, can, uh, contributed to writing it. So, like, everyone pitched in. You can tell. They were like, let's divide these scenes among all of us, and we'll just... That's why none of them fit. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, It's like a group paper. Right. What is it? You do your part. I'll do mine. We'll throw it together and see what happens. I'll do the conclusion (laughs) and the opening paragraph. And none of the rest of it matters. And none of the rest. Yep. So, they, the Terrys helped with the writing of the screenplay, they acted in it, and they took turns directing. So, Fine. apparently, like, one would direct one day and the other would direct the next day, which is, like, pure chaos. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure that's how they, like, divvied up the scenes. Oh, absolutely they did. So, apparently, it was a bit of a shit show with them having different visions about what they thought the editing process should look like and the filming process and lighting issues. I bet they had a lot of fights. I'm sure they did. One of the Terrys thought that the comedy aspect was the most important part, while the other Terry wanted to provide the film with, like, some legitimacy. So, like, there's a line um, as King Arthur is leaving, like, this town that's kind of in squalor, and one of the people in the town says he must be the king and the other one turns to him and says why do you say that and the first one says he doesn't have any shit on him Mm -hmm. so the first terry thought that that was the most important part the second terry was like okay but we need to make the rest of the place look real shitty right right so like together they had the right idea yeah and they made it work you need both for the joke to work so making sure that it was well represented in the film so that that line would land and have the attended impact was like super important Mm -hmm. because if there's no shit anywhere else in the film if you're neglecting all of the pieces that give it legitimacy Mm -hmm. then you just have like the stand-up comedy that doesn't actually work land yeah so it was super hard for the rest of the troupe to accept them as having more authority because all six of them had previously been pretty equal Right. So now we've got two who are like the directors and everyone else is like having to take direction from them. From like their friend. Yeah. Which is making things difficult. The Holy Grail was filmed on location in beautiful rural areas of Scotland. Their budget was about 230,000 pounds. And that money was raised in part with investments from some people that you may know. Oh, yeah. Pink Floyd. Oh. Elton John. Elton. Jethro Tull. Yeah. Led Zeppelin. And the UK industry entrepreneur, Tony Stratton Smith, who founded like a record label and also recorded their albums. Wow. So like some big names. Elton John, also on LSD, was like, this sounds super sick. (laughs) (laughs) Let me give you just all of my money. Let's do it. Yeah. This may or may not... But it was definitely due to some back, some tax benefits. Mm-hmm. But really, who's counting? Who's counting? Yeah. Uh, I also did the math for you. Uh, 230,000 pounds equals about $2.1 million today. No. Uh, which is like a super small amount of money to produce a movie. Yeah, but like we could have done way better than that. I mean, we also have like six leading men. Okay. Still. All of whom want approximately a million dollars we only have two million right so there is that got it 
I mean, they each play like a thousand roles. Oh, we're going into all their roles too. I wrote them all down. Perfect. You're welcome. Uh, They were so low budget that they could not afford horses, which led to the greatest visual and cinematic gag in that point to history with the coconuts. With the coconuts. We love the coconuts. They may or may not, but definitely also borrowed the killer, the like quote unquote killer rabbit from a woman who said not to get the rabbit dirty. Like apparently this was legitimately her pet. And so one person like took the woman and distracted her while the rest of them rubbed fake blood all over the rabbit (laughs) Uh and then gave the rabbit back to her. Stop. So there's that. Then get this. They were denied the ability to use any of the castles in Scotland that they had been like scouting out to do some filming at. So they ended up shooting all of their castle scenes from the same fucking castle. I bet. Inside, outside, every castle is the same fucking castle. The one scene where this is an exception is like, it kind of looks like a different castle. It's Camelot. And one of the members points at and says, it's only a model. Like he obvious, it's a two dimensional. You can uh kind of tell it's cardboard. Yeah. So like, even in that moment, they use it for comedy and they're like, Pointing out, like, everyone's going to obviously know that this is not a real castle. Mm -hmm. So we might as well go ahead and talk about it. Plus, all the troop played multiple roles. This is something that they would have definitely done even if they had a bigger budget. But it also did save them some money. And a lot of the um, extras also played multiple roles. Mm -hmm. So in an interview, I don't know any of their faces and names together. But Mm -hmm. one of them was talking about how he had like a driver or someone who was helping out and he asked the driver how many roles he'd been in and he was like 11 but i'm trying to get into 15 yes 15 yeah so here are i suppose i should have told you who our six leading men are so we have graham chapman round of applause for graham he was king arthur the og the og the voice of god so second og okay the middle head in the three-headed giant and the high coughing guard okay then we have john cleese who was the second soldier with an interest in birds love the title of that character yeah i love that too the large man yeah the large man with a dead body the black knight Mm -hmm. mr newt and an extraordinarily rude frenchman he was also tim the wizard and sir lancelot so John Cleese was like getting around. Yeah, he was. He had a lot. He was also in mul- like in some of the scenes he was playing multiple characters in the same scene. Oh, weird. Yeah. That sounds like a nightmare to shoot. It truly does. Then we have Terry Gilliam. This is the American. He's also one of the directors. He played Patsy, who was Arthur's trusty steed. So mm-hmm. he was like doing a lot of the coconuts. He was also the Green Knight, a soothsayer, the bridge keeper, Sir Gawain, the first to be killed by the rabbit, and the animator. And he did a lot of the animations. So we're going to talk about the animations. But he, like, had his hands in a bunch of things, too. Our fourth is Eric Idle. He was the dead collector. Mr. Blint, Sir Robin, the guard who doesn't high cough but tries to get things straight. Concord, Roger the Shrubber, and Brother Maynard. Mm. Sir Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Sir Robin. (laughs) Sir Robin. <laughs> we have Neil Inez, who was the first self-destructive monk, black, uh-huh. 
Robin's least favorite minstrel. Mm, the one who, yep. Yeah. Uh, the page crushed, the page crushed by a rabbit. And my very favorite character title, uh, the owner of a duck. Amen. None of these sound real. They all, Not, it's all like a Panic at the Disco song. None know? of this movie is real. It's all like a fever dream slash Panic at the Disco slash. Mm-hmm. A fever you can't sweat out. Right. Yeah. Slash uh, a princess, the Princess Bride and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. And then we have Terry Jones, who played Dennis's mother, Sir Be- Belvedere, the left head, mm. the voice of a cartoon scribe, and Prince Herbert. Mm. So, all right, let's talk a little bit more about the humor of the film. With the line, quote, are you suggesting coconuts migrate? <laughs> Classic. Super classic. Great line. Kind of opens us up, right? Yeah. Um, but it's one of the calling cards of the Pythons or the Pythongs oh. to present an absurdity. Like, are you suggesting coconuts migrate? And then allow several characters to nitpick it to death. Mm-hmm. Like, they do this in mm-hmm. a lot of their stand-up. But they do it with over-informed logic. So we may never know how the coconuts got to England, but we sure learned plenty about how many times per second a swallow needs to beat its wings in order to maintain airspeed velocity. Right. And the difference between an African swallow and a European swallow. And a European swallow. Which came in handy later. It did. Definitely came in handy later. Full story. Full cycle. Full circle. Circle. Yep. Because these are the things that King needs to know. Mm -hmm. And of course, I've got to talk about like the she's a witch scene. Yeah. As also a part of their humor, because it's one of my favorites. As I said, I watched this in like a rhetoric and debate class, and we talked about fallacies. So the thinking like A plus B might equal C, and that might be valid, but it's not sound or it's not true mm-hmm. or logical. So like the argument, all witches are things that can be burned. All things that can be burned are made of wood. Right. Nothing else burns but wood. Did you know that? Therefore, all witches are made of wood. None of those things are true. Well, I guess all witches can be... All witches are things that can be burned. All witches could be burned. That's true. Things... All things that can burn are made of wood is not true. Correct. Therefore, all witches are made of wood is a fallacy. Also, for some, and then somehow we get to what does wood do? It floats... Ducks float. She ducks must be float. a duck. Or if she weighs the same as a duck, she must be a witch. Which is all witches are made out of wood. All things that weigh the same as a duck are things that are made out of wood. Therefore, all witches are the thing that weighs the same as a duck. Jesus. Like the the brain power, like the mental gymnastics that goes into putting that scene together. Also, I really feel like that's the level of like just thought process that existed back in the day oh absolutely that would have been like a perfectly normal sentence well it's (laughs) (laughs) i mean this takes place in what 900 a.d or something like that um in some scenes and then other scenes there's a murder investigation happening and then in some scenes there's like the guys like the narrator guy gets killed and his wife's like wow yeah, and then there's the flying spaghetti monster that Ugh. just vanishes because they can't figure out how to get out of that scene otherwise. LSD. Yeah, for sure. But it tickles your brain in like both the absurdity of how it seems to mirror the way that 
people genuinely believe. Like it sounds almost like a really convincing argument. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much of you that wants to be like, oh, well, yeah, sure, 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 sure. But then I see how you her got nose there. comes off, so she doesn't actually have a wart on her nose because they taped the nose to her. Right. And then there's like the guy. It's funny in the sense that like she turned me into a newt. I got better. I got better. I got better. It's both hilarious and also like the deadpan thoughtfulness as he delivers it is priceless. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you manage to nail this kind of comedy for an hour and a half. Yeah, it's very consistent. It's super consistent, especially with all the inconsistencies that you should expect from Monty Python. The medieval doodles, like the little animations that happen, the books and whatnot, um, Terry Gilliam did all of those, and he was inspired uh, by actual animations from the medieval times. Huh. So in medieval times, people would often like doodle in the margins, and he took those and kind of ran with them. The, that piece looked more modern to me than anything else. Like, the movie to me looks really dated, but the animation looks, like, niche enough where it could be, like, more modern. Potentially, yeah. To me, I thought that it was super weird, did not go at all. Not that it mattered. I mean, nothing went. Nothing went. Like It makes total sense that it was, it looked like it was pieced and Velcroed together, the whole thing. Right. Like, we have the Black Knight whose arm gets cut off and he says, tis but a scratch. Mm-hmm. It's just a flesh wound. Just a flesh wound. And then his other arm gets cut off. And then he's, like, trying to kick him because he's relentless. Yeah. Like, no part of this movie makes any logical sense. No. But it's so close to making logical sense that you can kind of accept it. Mm, It's like the insanity is relatable. Right. So, and actually, they talk about this with the... Uh, animation, which is a key characteristic in a lot of the work that Monty Python did in their TV shows and in their plays and movies. Um, Like in their TV show, they have a baby foot kind of stomping Mm -hmm. uh, to like help transition scenes. And so they did not the baby feet, obviously, but like something similar in this with the book and like just silly animations and that, like, helped move the film along, but it also gave them a way out when they got stuck in a storyline and wanted a super swift transition. Yeah. They, they could just bail on it. Exactly. The animation is one of several unique attributes that are both uniquely Monty Python and somehow make it feel like a cohesive world. Ugh. Like, when you're watching something that is Monty Python, you almost feel like you are stepping into... That's true. ...this comforting world of Monty Python where nothing matters. Right. It's very down the rabbit hole. We even have our own white rabbit. Mm-hmm. Oh, we do? Yeah. He's a killer white rabbit. Right. But he is a white rabbit. Monty Python sketches were a blueprint for so many contemporary comedies, including Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, and pretty much every subsequent film that has broken the fourth wall. Shout out to Hamilton, who also breaks the fourth wall. The Atlantic describes it as, quote, an assault on the self-importance of cinema itself. An assault on the important self-importance of cinema in itself. There are a lot of S's and C's in that. Mm-hmm. I would like to go back to my earlier statements. <laughs> it is never mean-spirited, but reminds the audience not to take anything too seriously. 
The Pythons or the Pythongs influence on comedy has been compared to the Beatles. I already told you that part. Some really funny things to know. There wasn't any ad-libbing at all in the movie. The entire thing was scripted, and they stuck to the script the entire time. Interesting. That's unexpected. I I mean, you could tell it was all scripted, but normally with, like, sketch comedy like that, something's gotta be Like, whose line is it anyway? Yeah. Like, you're gonna throw in something. Yeah. Yeah. God, like, the picture of God, Mm -hmm. was actually a picture of a famous British cricket player named (laughs) W.G. Grace, who just happened to have a really great beard. That's hilarious. And they were like cool we'll use this guy that's hilarious yeah it's great it's so in tune like and in on track with everything else about this yeah so i have some critics reviews for you okay because we love these um i cannot believe this movie did so well i can sometimes (laughs) like it's the perfect movie for if you are genuinely sick and have a fever mm-hmm. and you want to watch something that is so mindless, but fever also like tickles yes. your brain and then you have a fever dream about it. Mm-hmm. Or if you're overwhelmed with like the state of the world, this would be a great film for you. Yeah. I can definitely see it's not for everyone, but there's something very comforting about it yeah. for me. It's good. It is good. So here are some reviews. Quote, here is Monty Python and the Holy Grail which is neither as sparkling as it is said to be, nor as bad as it seems at the start. It is pretty good. That's a really good (laughs) shit, yeah. Nailed it. Nailed it. Right? Another one is, the film's world of amicable nonsense looks so much better than the world of frightening nonsense we now occupy. Mm. It does have a a comforting level of absurdity, Mm. and nothing is reality yeah so i guess that is comforting yeah like there's so much a part of me that wishes that pieces of this comedy could be mimicked more often because it is comforting and it is lighthearted and it is engaging but also you have to be so smart to come up with this comedy and you have to have the ability to stay deadpan while providing or while like giving any lines yeah so in closing i don't want to talk to you no more (laughs) You empty-headed animal foot trough wiper. I fart in your general direction. (laughs) Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I... Oh, God. But with a French accent, because... With a... I don't want to talk to you no more. (laughs) My French sucks. I'm sorry. It's okay. Do better. But yeah. Well done. Thank you. It It is a really smart movie. I, I I normally the cult movies don't perform that well in the box office and right. people normally I mean again it's polarizing either you love it or you hate it I think it's interesting that it's on Netflix now yeah and that it still has a life of its own so I think it's been on Netflix for like four or five months at this point maybe mm-hmm. six so hopefully people will have watched it recently or if not go watch it now go watch it now um and I don't feel like there's any way to spoil any of it like we can't we can't i mean we could tell you how things end but there's so much of a non-plot line that does not matter it doesn't it's about the journey it's one of those that would be great in all circumstances but especially like if you are doing other things 
Mm-hmm. Like you just want to sit down for five minutes and watch something and then get up and go do something else. Do you and want to Netflix back. and chill? Yeah. Or that. It might be great for that too. It might be great for that. You're welcome. Also, there's a lot of like insulting. So maybe turn the sound off if you're Netflix and chilling. The, it's the net, the, the, uh, it, I can't call it like a <laughs> sexy film. No, I would have to agree. There's uh also, you know, in, in, there's uh the only sexy scene is with all the women and the and the oral sex the piece. house of virgins yeah mm-hmm. which were, i totally forgot about by the way i forgot about so much of this movie and i feel like so i watched it twice to do mm-hmm. my notes mm-hmm. and both times when i went to read the uh synopsis and they were like framed by modern murder investigation like no part of my brain remembered the murder investigation like, my brain focused so much on King Arthur. Yeah. That, like, it completely ignored everything else that was not happening in King Arthur. Yeah. Realm. I also remember the first half way more than the second half. Because I must have watched the first half just much more frequently. Right. As a, growing up. I could see that. So, the last half, I was like, huh. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. Like the bunny part, the rabbit part, just... Yep. Right. Right yeah. over my head. Totally forgot. Yeah, me too. I mean, it was good. It is good. I would give this movie five stars, I think. That's a good point. I think I would too. Yeah. I'm I mean, not I craving don't... it, but... Like, Tammy and the T-Rex, like, I could sit down and watch by myself. Like, it's entertaining. For sure. I have to be in the right mood to watch this one. This one, I feel like I could sit down and watch. And just, like enjoy mm-hmm. by myself yeah so i think i'm i'm the opposite of you with tammy and the t-rex like i enjoyed tammy and the t-rex this one feels more easily watchable to mm-hmm. me tammy and the t-rex like i think i would need motivation from somebody else or like to be in a very specific mood to watch that one again to now, each their own hedwig and the angry inch mm-hmm. we'll be watching that one again very shortly it's the difference between sock sock shoe shoe and sock shoe sock shoe and that is a full circle. <laughs> what other intersection do we need? We don't. Beyond that. We don't, actually, because we don't do intersections here. But this was super fun. If you guys have any recommendations for us for cult pieces of media or cult cults, uh, uh, shoot us a message on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. As a reminder, we've got a new recipe up for grabs in season two. So if you want to become a patron, you want to pick a topic for us, head on over to patreon.com and search for podcasts without an audience. We're in there. And uh, we hope you all have a great week. Stay tuned until next week. We love you so much. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.